You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. My name is Chelsea Slotten and today I'm joined by Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always lovely to conversations with you. Yeah, happy to be here. Spectacular. So on today's episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about tourism, particularly the impact that tourism can have on archaeological sites and their surrounding areas. We're going to talk some about the positives and the negatives for the sites for individuals themselves, as well as some of the legislation and best practices surrounding tourism at archaeological sites. But to, to start off, I think that we should have a little bit of a conversation about why tourism and allowing public access to archaeological sites is important in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so Emily or Kirsten, you want to kick us off? Sure, I can jump right in there. Um, I think it's really easy as archaeologists to just be like, everything should be closed off. Everything should be protected. Nobody go to it. But what would be the point of that? And nobody would understand then why these places need to be protected, why they are important in the first place. And so I think just at the most basic level, having some access to some sites uh, is incredibly important just as being a visual reminder and a place people can go to understand why we do what we do as archaeologists and why these places have a crucial role in showing what has happened in the past. That whole, you know, you don't know what's going to, you can't plan for your future if you don't know what happened in the past, you don't want to repeat your mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. And on top of that, in the United States, we have cultural resource management laws that actually state that we have to do public education, that it needs to be part of our programs, that if you receive federal funding, this is an aspect that we are supposed to be contributing to. So not only is it an important thing we should be doing in the first place so that people understand why we do what we do, it's actually mandated by like the National Historic Preservation Act where we're supposed to be doing some kind of outreach, some kind of educational outreach so that people can have a further grasp on uh, the nation's heritage. And I think that goes internationally as well so that we can have an appreciation for heritage internationally. I would definitely agree. Um, I would like to add as well the importance of tangibility, Um, being able to visit some of these sites, especially ones that you hear of that are more famous, such as Luxor, Stonehenge. um, The the ability to walk in and have an embodied experience of heritage or of age or of anything, especially in this stage of digital connectivity or disconnectivity, there's so much emphasis on visual and auditory stimulus. And it's really hard to find people um, that are, say how, how to say this, um, but that are, are connected in a more visceral way to the outside world. Um, Outside, I mean, that's one of the things as archaeologists, we really are lucky to be 
able to work outside or in the field or to go and to do and to touch and to physically interact with the world that we see and with the history. Um, and most people, the majority of people don't get to do that. I mean, most people, you know, nowadays work in offices or cubicles or behind a computer at home. And that sort of visceral interaction with history and one's heritage and, um, these types of things are just as important, um, but underemphasized as the whole movement and discussion about the importance of nature for children. I mean, that that connection with what's real um, and what has been and was also real is something that I think we as a society have lost touch with. And, you know, I think it's important to be able to have representatives or, or things that are easily to connect, easy to connect to, um, as available. Um, and then in the U S you know, I'd point out like, uh, Gettysburg or Chaco Canyon or the Grand Canyon, um, which is more of a natural place, but there's a lot of, not um, a really cool archeology span there too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it's that, that ability to, to connect. Um, however, as we'll discuss, in a bit that's uh not everyone connects as easily and nor do they know how to or respectfully Mm -hmm. yeah they don't really know how to in a a respectful proper way so the physical interactions can vary but I think it's important to have those but also to teach people how to do it and how to experience these places without causing damage exactly well there's also that miss uh, perception too. Like when I go into classrooms and talk about archaeology, there's always that idea that uh, we don't really have the same level of archaeology, history, prehistory, etc. in the United States. Like it's all Egypt. It's all Stonehenge. It's all yeah abroad. You know, the joke where Eddie Izzard says, you know, I'm from England where history is, you know, <laughs> those type of <laughs> things. <laughs> and I think at least here in the United States, it's really great when we can actually get kids to archaeological sites. And of course, there are issues with that, but at least in some respects, getting them there so they understand that we have such an incredibly rich prehistory and history with just incredibly yeah. unique peoples that are they're still here today. And showing that connection, I think, can be incredibly meaningful for children and then growing into adults that then hopefully further appreciate what's going on in our past. And instead of being like, yeah, I'd much rather have this lovely highway. And they see, you know, the highway is going to be destroying a whole, like a, a mining camp, an old mining camp. and has a lot of cool ca- cabins. They'll be like, that doesn't seem cool. I'm going to contact, you know, the local federal agency. And then they'll cause a hubbub about it. And then the archaeologist at the agency will be like, yay, somebody else cares. And then that place will get protected. Maybe, hopefully. And that highway might be rerouted. So we need to create a generation of people who care and keep the people who already care, keep them rolling and just trying to create a populace that actually cares even just the teeniest bit that like, you know, don't scratch on rock art or don't uh, don't destroy things willy nilly. It's like it all stems (laughs) from just realizing we have so much cool stuff here. (laughs) I think a lot of people might know about some of that in an intellectual way. You've 
you know, gone to school and sat through a history or a social study class and, and learned about the history of the United States, which unfortunately oftentimes in classes is presenting starting in 1492 when Columbus shows up, which is, you know, wrong. Yeah. Um, Vikings, but, come on. Well, Vikings. And we Native American populations. Native American indigenous <laughs> populations are super important. Um, but as much as you can have a prof- or a teacher talk to you about that in class or read a book about it or see news, um, you know, regarding these ancestral lands, it's, it's not necessarily as real as being there and seeing it and experiencing it mm-hmm. is. So if, if you can get your local populations engaged in their local history and local archaeology, they can help recognize when um, sites are in danger from climate change or construction or looting, and they can let archaeologists um, with either this particular organization or with the local historic preservation board, um, they can let them know that something is is happening and that helps preserve our history and our heritage and our archaeological sites for everyone, mm-hmm. which is also important. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I also think there are some very practical realities of why tourism can be good, both for the the site itself as well as surrounding areas. There yeah. are certainly towns that that all they do is tourism, so it creates jobs for you know hundreds or potentially thousands of people, from people who are working at the archaeological site to um, guides who are getting you there or hotels or the restaurant industry. So it can be really, really good for a community and can provide jobs and, and resources. And if sites are popular, money is often invested in them that provides more jobs and can help mm-hmm. to preserve sites. Uh, Pompeii is, is a really great example of this. Um, you know, Several years ago and up to today, you periodically see news articles about Pompeii is crumbling. Mm-hmm. Some wall has fallen down or a building has fallen down. And, and one thing that these articles are, are quick to stress usually is that the portion of Pompeii that's that tourists can go to is perfectly safe and is in really good repair. And the places where is where there aren't tourists Um because money isn't necessarily being put there to do the kind of daily repairs to take care of, um, you know, old concrete that's been waterlogged or, um, you know, just that sort of site that's 2,000 years old. Is it more of an outcry from archaeologists then saying the site's crumbling, even though the public may not actually see those parts of Pompeii? Yeah, so it's, it's archaeologists. Some of my understanding um, it was that sometimes you could see bits that were crumbling from the tourist area, even if you couldn't like physically get to them. Mm. Um, so some tourists could see areas where it's not in as great shape. Um, but definitely archaeologists, um, historic preservation people who go see it, uh, you know, UNESCO, um, you know, the um, 
I think it was in 2010, a portion of the Scola Amatorium, if I probably butchered that name, was collapsed <laughs> and a UNESCO site or a UNESCO um, team was sent to inspect the entirety of the site and write a report on it. Mm -hmm. well. But they got a lot of money because it was in such bad repair to make it better. Mm -hmm. Although, unfortunately, it sounds like, I mean, obviously, this topic we'll get into, a lot of places don't receive that kind of funding. It's like, what do you do? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's Pompeii. Yeah, Ev know. everybody it's wants to go to well Pompeii. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And funding is definitely an issue. Mm -hmm. But uh, yep. building off of what you were talking about, how it can really help the local community, well, I think that is interesting in places that... Um, didn't have quite uh, the infrastructure, let's say, for large-scale tourism, it can be helpful for that community to, um, if you can involve them as much as possible in areas where maybe there's a large-scale excavation and then um, it will turn into a tourist spot, is being able to involve the community, have them be part of the excavations and there are a lot of great examples where that not only does it have educational value, um, revenue value for supporting the community, but it also helps the people um, in terms of like keeping traditions going, um, showing the importance of that uh, community and uh, traditional beliefs at a larger scale. Um, and just getting people involved can be incredibly helpful and in like promoting the wishes and desires of what that community would want for what could be a huge, huge, huge tourist site. Perhaps then it can be the, the actual visiting side of it can be molded in a way that is respectful of traditions and so forth. So I think tourism can be helpful in, in that sense, although I know there are issues on top of that in terms of how a lot of the burden is placed on local populations um, and how they don't always get the most benefits. But generally speaking, it seems that tourism can at least kickstart some local industries, support communities. And if you can get the community involved, it can help educate their children in terms of local beliefs and traditions, but also inform on a wider scale. Sure. Yeah. And a great point that as with everything you need to consider the wishes of the the local community and make sure everything is desired and respectful and um to archaeological tourism is not guaranteed to be wonderful no. it can be if it's done right <laughs> but, but it's not guaranteed to be wonderful <laughs> Well, and you'll always have those rotten eggs, which we'll discuss um, in a bit later, but that's just going to happen with any endeavor. And um, I know there is a, a something that pops up fairly often um, that I've noticed online. And I mean, this is something, you know, there's always people that cry wolf. There's always people that are like, well, this isn't working because someone's doing something bad. Well, there's always going to be someone doing something bad that want to ruin it for the rest of them. Um, but if you have, you know, one person out of say a thousand people visiting a site that's doing something bad, you can't necessarily, you know, 
and this is a discussion we'll get into later, is does does that actually ruin it for everyone else? Some of it depends on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Ticks me off regardless. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and what can be done to help prevent that 1% or less of people who want to um, destroy or want attention through destruction as they're videotaping whatever they're painting in a national park or (laughs) inscribing next to the really ancient petroglyphs because they're cool like the Indians. Um, Just, I can go on and on, but there's Mm -hmm. um, just a whole other set of things that come with it. Um, But remembering that these things and even just as a cause to fight for can knit communities together and create sort mm-hmm. of that that bonding experience of a local community, even if a lot of the burden does end up falling on their shoulders. I think that the pluses of 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 having something to fight for, to fight about, to fight with is is important. Oh, definitely. And even thinking in terms of like knitting communities together on a national scale, one of it seems like the delightful um, outcomes of tourism and public shaming is that when people do something to a very popular tourist site and that's incredibly important um, collectively, um, like you were saying, painting in a national park or leaving tags, that kind of thing, uh, the public shaming side of it, like people are capturing that while that happens and trying to put it up on media sites and then being helpful and trying to like give that information to rangers. And so the more and more that happens, we can see like, oh, people are becoming more and more aware that that's wrong, that that shouldn't be yeah. happening. And it's like, hey, that's a that's a good benefit. It's bad that that something some kind of vandalism is occurring. But then there's a general populace around that saying, yeah, that's not cool. Let's videotape it and give it to a ranger. And then that person will get prosecuted who did the vandalism. It's like, yay, good job, social media. <laughs> Exactly. And and the more popular, the more well-known a site is, the more often it's visited by tourists, the more likely it is to be protected by onseers or uh, the general populace will care. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't until all of this um, discussion on whether or not to revisit or to look at National Monument dedication, and that's a whole other like discussion on political power and yada yada, but... Um, just that that was going to be a discussion woke people up to being like, well, how many national monuments do we have? Do I have one near me? Is there one I care about? How big are these? Where are they? What's in them? Why are they uh, considered important? So just the number of people who, I mean, I don't know if the visitation went up, I'm guessing it may have, but just the research or uh, the hits on, on Google just skyrocketed. Hmm. Yeah, that does not surprise me at all. And um, going a little bit back to to Emily's point, even for sites that don't have a lot of funding, um, the the public shaming around sites that have funding and and are well-known can benefit them because people learn about appropriate behavior at archaeological sites, and they can transfer that knowledge that's gained talking about places like Pompeii or the pyramids or Machu Picchu or Gettysburg to other sites that that might not be as well known um, or have as much oversight, but they still know how to behave appropriately. Excellent. Yeah. So I think this actually brings us about to the end of our first 20 minute 
um, segment. And when we come back, we will talk a little bit about some of the negative impacts. Um, you mean we'll rant about the negative impacts? <laughs> yes, yes. There are lots of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm Jessica Quinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we have been discussing the impacts of tourism on archaeological sites. For the first 20 minutes, we talked a little bit about some of the positive impacts that tourism can have on archaeology, from making people aware of their own history to providing a revenue stream. Um, and in the next 20 minutes, we're going to jump into some of the negative aspects <laughs> of um, the, the impact tourism can have on, on archaeological sites. And I know that we all have so many feels about this. So um, maybe, <laughs> Kirsten, do you want to kick us off since Emily kicked off the last section? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, so there's many places to start. I'm going to start with um, something that I've spent a fair amount of time this summer at, um, a little site um, in sort of a, a north-central Idaho Um not far from the Oregon border. In some ways, it seems like a very remote location, but it's actually not super far from anything. Um, the archaeological site I'd been working on, Cooper's Ferry, is open to the public. It's an active field school excavation um, until uh, 2019. However, um, though we tend to have anywhere between 800 to 2,000 visitors per year, uh, occasionally you get the bad apple. Um, <laughs> and while most of the local community is very supportive and loves having us there, uh, partly because, you know, you have anywhere from 10 to 30 students, uh, they bring all of, you know, their spending money for, you know, food. And then you have all the visitors that come from all over the world, um, and bringing revenue into the local area. So, so those were some of the positives, but um, I think this year we had someone kind of randomly cut a bunch of rope to our shade, which was, seemed really bizarre. They didn't take anything or do anything with it. They just wanted to cause a ruckus or something or huh. thought they maybe a car drove by and like scared them out of their wits and they left. Um, but there have been a few occasions to where that site has been vandalized and people have been caught, people have been persecuted. And that's something that is one of those things that it's like, you know, should you have excavations or should you have sites open to the public? Um, as you said, lots of everyone has feels on it. Um, but this is was one that that my um, advisor had decided to keep open to the public to educate and to kind of get people a better mental orientation of what an excavation looks like. You know, you're not walking into um, ancient Egypt or we're not you know doing a, a Stonehenge. It's it's a lot more micro scale um, excavation. 
and uh, as it's a, sort of a geoarchaeology base, it's it's not a lot of the big flashy stuff. So uh, the nice part of that is, is people get it, you know, take a look and be like, oh, okay, cool. There's there's some stuff here, but it's not really worth, you know, destroying a bunch of this for, you know, what you're going to actually pull out of it if you were to try and loot the site. Um, and, th- you know, that can go for for pretty much anywhere. Um, doing a lot of survey, you see archaeological sites that don't have um, such types of funding for public visitation that are, they're just trying to be protected. Um, anywhere on federal or private land throughout uh, the West in particular, kind of anywhere, but um, there's a lot of parts of the West where you have stuff sort of consistently at the surface. Um, and it's a similar thing in the Southwest. And you have sites that are, say, they're fenced off. Um, there's cave sites I know of that, you know, the BLM, bless their heart, were uh, they put a, a fence in front of the cave that had been a, a cave that had been looted previously. And, of course, you know, looters went back in and just pulled the fence down and looted behind it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and this bad. is... A, yeah, it's an it's an ongoing um, issue, the looting, and we have other episodes on that. But that is one of the bigger risks to the public access to it, because this particular site actually had because it had been looted previously. And one of their attempts at preventing looting was putting up a fence and a plaque like a the informational sign. Mm-hmm. And, and you're also actually, telling people where it is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a very obvious, it's right on a uh, hiking trail. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of factors into the fact that it's, you know, at the uh, mouth of a, a tiny, it's a little tiny canyon. There's a gazillion canyons out, out there, but there's, um, in, there's a hiking trail that goes through there and it's a very obvious cave. Um, and so people naturally want to walk up to it. And so, having had previous looting or even just looters looking for places, it's, it's a very obvious one. So it was an attempt at trying to keep people out being like this, Hey, this is important to the people that are still here and hold this place sacred. Please don't, you know, dig at it. That'd be great. Um, but it didn't really mm-hmm. do much prevention. Um, and then there's the larger scale things like, um, when I did my internship in Malta, one of the things that I learned about that is, uh, you know, there's a big tourist tourism market for their heritage. That is, Heritage Malta is a wonderful um, national museum to work for. And one of the things I, when I was working there, stumbled across is one of the local environmental groups are the hunters. They're the the uh, songbird hunters. So there is a whole, uh, whenever they would get upset about something, they, not all the time, but there were a couple occasions I remember where they would get upset about some policy or something that was going on. And they would, um, sort of write that and spray paint on the monuments. Hmm. Hmm. So it's like the, the clashes of these different kinds of conservation groups kind of going at each other mm-hmm. in a, a not very nice way. <laughs> um, and so it's it's interesting because it gave them an outlet to be heard because uh, they're a group that isn't very highly respected um, in a lot of Maltese society. Um, and 
but at the same time, yeah, they're they're destroying one of the things that kind of keeps them going that that keeps the money coming into to the area. Um, so those are some of my personal experiences that I've seen with the negatives um, is anywhere from, you know, spray paint vandalism, looting and just straight up destruction um, of the infrastructure around the, the public portion of the site. I think that really what you're getting into there's a definite difference between unintentional impacts and intentional impacts from, you know, people just visiting in itself. It's an unintentional impact. You're just wanting to visit these places. So your hikers going to that cave, they may want to explore it. And just their presence of being there is an unintentional impact to what you're saying with the spray paint, the looters, your massive intentional impacts. And it's crazy how much you can have something that's an unintentional impact quickly turn to something that is quite intentional. And um, just in terms of, for our listeners sake, the kinds of like unintentional things that we see at archaeological sites, at least here in the United States, and I'm sure internationally as well, um, especially as uh, cultural resource managers or as just concerned citizens that you may see people at an archaeological site and they may be sitting, climbing, standing, etc. on structures or on middens on fragile soils. And if there's absolutely no signage and there's no education saying otherwise, they're not intending to be destroying maybe a wall or destabilizing something or churning up um, culturally sensitive soils, etc. Or... Um, there's been a number of archaeological sites that have had to be closed, like, a, is it Lascaux Cave or Chavot Cave that has been completely closed off to the public? Yeah, Lascaux. Yeah. And just because, I mean, a person's just body heat and humidity can destroy cultural remains, which is um, crazy that they can happen. Um, or just you have so many people packed into a small location that arms rubbing against the hieroglyphs of a an Egyptian tomb or just having so many people at one location, um, at cliff house at Mesa Verde, um, can really be a destabilizing force, but then you can go zoom in right into intentional to people removing artifacts. And I do not care if people are like, I had no idea. It's not okay to take things. Of course it's not okay to take things. I mean, would you go into somebody's house and be like, I like this lamp, I'm going to take it. Or go into a store and just be like, that looks cool, it's mine now. Or go to a museum and smash a museum case. Like, I genuinely do not get people being like, I saw a shirt or an arrowhead, I'm just going to take it. It's like, no, it's not okay. That's not unintentional. It is so intentional, and I think people in their gut always know it's wrong. That's my soapbox. Right, yeah. <laughs> and but then other things like not respecting signage that says like don't sit on this wall and people sit on the wall or they leave trash at sites. Um, take off-road vehicles, let's say through Bears Ears National Monument, and they're just zooming their ATVs all over pueblos. Um, and then I think this is a big one. You may not be doing the looting, but then you're purchasing looted artifacts that's a very intentional impact to sites like you may not be the one yeah. with the shovel but you're contributing to it if there's yeah. no yeah. market they won't do it exactly uh, so yeah it's so anything important to think about those intentional and unintentional but at the same time at the end of the day it's in impacting but sorry please I didn't mean to cut you off there <laughs> <laughs> 
No, and and like you're right, the intentional versus the unintentional is it's a really really important distinction to make. And some of the plaques and and the signs that you can put up can really help with the unintentional damage that's that's happening. Um, whether it's a sign that says "Please don't go into this cave," you, you know, it's um, important spiritually to the ancestors of the people who once used it. Or just says toxic it, waste just so people don't go in it. Or right, restoration. It, that are full of bats. Yeah. Don't enter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people, I, I find that people are, are generally pretty pretty good. And if you tell them not to do something just to tell them not to do something, you might get some pushback. But if you give them a reason why so they understand, oh, like that makes sense. I can get on board with that that logic. And it can help with a lot of the unintentional negative impacts the the intentional negative impacts are much more difficult to to deal with Mm -hmm. for sure um you know i mean all of the the stories of people who want to carve their initials into the coliseum or the pyramids or who want to pick up a rock like oh it's just a rock it doesn't matter like everything here is made out of a rock it's important to put it down yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's there's one million people that go through, say, Stonehenge every year. If everyone took even just a blade of grass on the side, like you're going to end up plucking out half the lawn. Or think of the amount of graffiti if everyone put their initials on Stonehenge. Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's – that is an important point. I, um, I'm going to segue slightly into a museum story that I went with um, – I met, you know, someone at a, at a barbecue who said, there's this really interesting, you know, museum exhibit. Do you want to go? And I said, sure. I'd never met the person before. And we were in, in this museum that had rails around statues and things, but, and some things were behind glass cases, but not everything was. And this individual like looked around, waited for a guard to be gone and then like reached out and started like fondling the statue. Um, and I, you know, lost my ever-loving mind at, and was just like, that's inappropriate. And, and, oh, well, no, like, it's fine because not everyone does it because, like, most people pay attention to the signs. And, oh, I see conservatives do But, like, conservators have training. And if if everyone Loves. did it, there would be nothing left. Yeah. Um, I, if you want to touch it and it's old and you think it's cool and, like, like no. And, and that kind of I'm special, I'm exceptional if everyone felt that way, there would be nothing yeah. left. And I'm just gonna put this out there: like, you're not special, you're not exceptional. <laughs> Don't touch the old thing. <laughs> yeah. See, I've, I've, I've no, and just, and that's the big thing too. It's like, fellow archaeologists or concerned people have no shame. Yell at people, smack people's hands. Do it. <laughs> Stop yeah. it. Yeah. Just be like, so Don't do I'm that. Going... Smack. <laughs> so I have, I have two things um, to add to to your story, Chelsea, or to, to emphasize some of the pieces. So if anyone has ever been to an old stone building, and particularly if you go to, uh, I mean, I've seen this in everything from banks in the U S but you can go to it's part, it's, it's really emphasized in some of the older parts of Europe, any staircase, if you look that stone has the wear patterns like this, this bowl in the middle of the step where people walk, and that's mm-hmm. not from the stone sinking over years. That's it rubbing away from your shoes, which are rubber. So they're not meant to like do a lot of rubbing. So 
like that's just to get an idea of the idea that the sense of erosion that can occur from touching things. And then I'm going, the second thing is a friend of mine told me the story and I, I don't remember where it is. Um, I want to say it's somewhere in Europe. It's a, a location that she was saying was like a, uh, where a, um, relic of a saint was kept and people had been going to touch this particular, um, like pillar for hundreds of years that's okay and like there's a handprint that sinks into the stone from so many i don't even know how many people touching just the same spot so if you are exceptional and there's one million people that are coming through a particular space to touch a statue or to look at a statue. If one out of 10 or even one out of 50, if those people touch that statue, you're going to get wear. You're going to get erosion. You're going to get a polishing um, on that spot. And it's always going to be on whatever's closest, whatever's most touched or anything from like um, the site that uh, I just described to the, there's like the Blarney stone. There's (laughs) There's a lot of places where people, where it's traditional to go and touch. And that's, I think, an uh, an urge that we have as humans is to touch and to interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I hinted at early on in the show is that that, that ability to physically and bodily um, interact with things. Um, and sometimes touching is appropriate, but most of the time, unless it says touching is appropriate and there's obvious signs of like you may touch this like such um areas there's it's not appropriate to touch Mm -hmm. (laughs) let's just say there are ways that you can interact with the site and i think you know giving this is the same reason why like teaching collections always have touchables like people want to physically interact and that's where like if you're walking through a place, stopping and touching the ground that you're on, um, if you're wanting to touch something, um, taking stuff, I think, is a similar reaction. It's the, mm-hmm. the having that tangible like, physical thing from that place. Yes. And it's the same thing as like taking a, a photo. It's wanting to take a piece of that place and that feeling that you have when you're in that place home with you and being able to return to that feeling consistently. And I totally get that. But that is one of those that. That's why there's gift shops. Yeah. Um, I have a, a quick story a on that, of- if you don't mind me sharing it real quick. <laughs> yeah. That just made me, no, just like as a personal story, that's just like made me so mad. Like even one of my friend's parents who knows I'm an archaeologist, she's known me since I was like 10, knows my views on like protecting heritage, etc. They went to Israel, they went to Masada, and she's like, Emily, guess what I picked up from Masada? And of course I was like, oh shit, oh shit, what did she get? And she's like, they had so many pieces of pottery up there. I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. And she's like, I took one and I know you're going to be really mad about it, but there were so many. And it's like, you knew that's going to piss me off. Why are you telling me this? But even just, it's like, even people who know better still want that like, tangible fragment yeah. even and will tell archaeologists like yeah i stole this cool thing even though i knew it was wrong it's like oh so so frustrating but curiously what you're saying it's like people want that tangible piece of the past it might be because it's exotic yeah. or different or it's just like it means i was there but i don't know take a picture 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a lot of gift shops will have replicas or even pieces that you can buy of fill in the blank. Like, you know, granted, this is a natural situation, not a cultural, but, you know, you can go to Mount St. Helens and buy things made of or like a little vial of Mount St. Helens ash. Like there's stuff that there's obviously plenty of, you know. You may have one if you pay the right price. There's, <laughs> um, but yeah, just taking stuff from the ground. Um, I, it's illegal. Yeah, it's it's right. illegal. Like, ta- especially when you get to like places with really old cobblestone streets. Do not take the stone cobbles out of the street. Um, yeah, that's one I've seen. Um, <laughs> and, and just because something's available in a gift store and Israel is a really interesting, um, place to, to talk about because I know I have friends who've, who've gone and done birthright there and as part of birthright went and worked on an archeological dig and, you know, the, the kids who were there were all allowed to take a, you know, small one inch by one inch piece of pottery hmm. that had been looked at by an archeologist and identified as not significant. Because they do have a lot of stuff. And if you mm-hmm. have a million shards of the exact same thing, but, but there's a difference between something that's been identified by an archaeologist and you've been told that you can either have because you participated in this archaeological dig with this program that has appropriate oversight or yes. that you can buy from a store. And that doesn't mean that everything you can just pick up off the ground mm-hmm. because it hasn't right. been looked at. It might be significant, like you just don't um when in doubt leave it alone (laughs) yes and gift shops being like the ones at the sites usually have been vetted antique shops please do not buy old things from antique shops i mean there's antiques is one thing but like you can kind of tell when you have an archaeological artifact and granted this is probably a bias that i have but it just infuriates me to no end when i see um I mean, it, I, to me, it's very obvious when there's been a, um, say, a, a point that has been manufactured recently, which is, people are offered for sale. I'm like, you know, support the flint napper. Like, dude, buy that. Um, but something that has any sort of patina on it or is irregular in shape is probably an actual artifact. Do not buy such things. Um, yeah. we could like if you have ho-ho together bracelets <laughs> at the uh, shell bracelets at your antique store, they were probably looted. Yeah, they were probably looted. And even especially things, anything with like a pipe, bowl or beads are probably grave goods. So that's especially a big no-no. Um, but even things like, and this is one that always kind of drives me nuts, are the, the bottles, the historic bottles mm-hmm. that have obviously been sitting in the sun um, have a patina on them or still have dirt on them. I'm like, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and granted it's legal in your own private property in some States to remove archeological artifacts, but I still like to discourage that because it is not a good thing to do. And these are laws that need to be fixed, not like these are the better things. And I know there are other people who disagree with me on that, but that's my, my soapbox. <laughs> Fair enough. And I think that that is actually a really good point to end our second 20 minute section where we've talked about some of the negative impacts to sites that can occur as a result of tourism of archaeology. 
And when we come back for the third section, we'll talk about maybe a couple of case studies that we've missed as well as some of the negative personal impacts that can occur to you if um, you, you know, loot and you think you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far in today's episode, we have been discussing the impact of tourism on archaeological sites. We've covered some of the positives and some of the negatives, and in this section, we are going to move into... Uh, some case studies that we may not have mentioned previously, as well as personal impacts of doing things you shouldn't. Um, I'm going to actually kick this off really quickly. One of our guests who occasionally comes on was unfortunately not able to join us today, but she really wanted to mention the archaeology that goes on at um, Montpelier, at James Madison's house, and at... Um, Monticello, and they both have archaeological digs that the public can can sign up to participate in. And I think that that is another, for the most part, positive of archaeological tourism because you are training people to recognize archaeology and deal responsibly with it in their everyday life. We also all know that um, archaeologists are underpaid and there aren't a ton of us. So getting people to come help excavate and be invested in these sites is really beneficial for studying and understanding them, um, you know, as well as giving people a sense of, of connection to the past of this country and their past. So I, I had promised that I would throw those two sites in there. So I just wanted to make that quick um, mention before I forgot about it. <laughs> Um, as yeah. I did in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then maybe on a completely swinging to the opposite side of the, the spectrum, we spoke a lot about the potential impacts to archaeological sites from, from tourism and from bad tourism. But there are also some, can be some really intense personal impacts to doing things you shouldn't. One example that actually made a huge impact on me when I was uh, a high school student, there was an article in, you know, 17 or Teen Vogue or Teen People or one of those clearly, you know, geared at, at high school students that was talking about a girl who was from the Midwest who had gone to, remember it was the Coliseum or the Parthenon or, but it was, it was somewhere in the classical world and she had picked up a stone that she wanted to take home and she ended up getting arrested and being detained by the Italian police oh, geez. for, you know, 
a substantial period of time and it, it took some doing to get her kind of um, released. And I unfortunately looked for that article um, online and it doesn't seem to be digitized. And I certainly don't have, you know, the hard copy of that magazine from. You didn't keep it forever? <laughs> no, I didn't imagine that. Um, you know, but so you can end up being arrested and in jail. You can also mm-hmm. end up with some pretty hefty um, fines. There was a, a guy at the... And what a dumb thing to be going to jail for. Um, for aggravated damage um, is, is one of the common things that is used in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't go to jail, there was um, a Russian tourist in 2014 who carved his name on the Coliseum and was slapped with a $20,000 euro fine, which is like a little bit over $21,000, which is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And and people are getting caught more often because other visitors are aware that this is wrong and they may take videos and give it to the, you know, visitor information desk or security, or sometimes people are really stupid and they carve their initials in something and take a photo of it and put it on Facebook and somebody <laughs> finds it and hands it to the appropriate people and you get caught. Um, well, I have a great example of that you, real quick. It, it's pretty yeah. funny. Somebody uh, nearby some prehistoric rock art carved their initials and their phone number. <laughs> it's like, hmm, I wonder who did this. <laughs> I'm so cool. Call me. Pretty much. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, it's what you're doing is wrong. And then you'd go even that level further. You're like, you're really dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Sorry. Please, <laughs> please continue. No. <laughs> More no, examples. I mean, if you're, you're going to vandalize, keep, keep doing that. Keep putting pictures online and oh, make yeah. it easy for, uh, yeah. You get caught. Oh yeah. Like well, the, Italy has it. Oh, a whole other level of they have like their heritage police mm-hmm. separate from their regular police force. So that's a whole other level of in, you know, uh, safeguarding for, you know, stuff. <laughs> They're especially active along the coast, I guess, because fishermen are pulling stuff up all the time by accident. Oh. Um, so that's something that they you know, most fishermen are pretty good about reporting stuff and where they found it. And then the heritage police, you know, recover the items and then go back and clock in, um, the location, um, to try and find the site again, or it, you know, if it's not known, sometimes it is. Um, but they're pretty, pretty active, um, over there. And I think similar laws also hold in Egypt, but aren't, I don't want to say aren't as well enforced. Um, I have no idea because stuff in Egypt seems to be in so much flux uh, mm-hmm. the last few years. Um, but I know they had some pretty strong uh, heritage laws for some time until the government overthrew. Um, and it's it, traveling abroad. You, you see that a lot more. Um, some of the articles um, that I read had to do with um, photos or video taken next to or in some of these heritage sites or archaeological sites that are representative of the country or the nation. And while that may be all cool in the U.S. to some extent to do, you know, something raunchy in front of like 
you know, Casa Grande, I wouldn't recommend it at all, <laughs> but you're not going to get necessarily arrested for it. Um, in places like uh, Thailand or Cambodia or <laughs> um, Egypt or, you know, you're going to get detained um, mm -hmm. if as well as possibly fined. But, um, you know, some people go to jail for some time um, and I would probably throw a bet that China has similar laws as well. So it's hard to to really know what you're dealing with if you do decide to do one of these things that may seem fine and okay. Um, but a lot of places have some really severe punishments that you are not going to be used to or think that you are going to have to encounter. Uh, but generally, yeah, just don't do it. And then you don't have to think about that. <laughs> One uh, phenomena that I know has been talked about other park service staff members and went on having visited parks. And this must be a phenomena that must happen internationally too, is that as soon as people drive into a national park, it's like all common sense just goes out the window. You have people like stopping in the middle of the road to take a picture of a bear or people trying to, you know, put their child on top of a moose or a buffalo or, oh you know, just like dumb things where you're kind of like, yeah, how is it you didn't know you shouldn't do that? And I've seen that with archaeological resources as well, where kids were seen um, throwing rocks at rock art and the parents thought it was funny. But it's like, you know, mm -hmm. that's not cool because there's signs right there saying protect heritage and blah 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 or kids drawing on things or adults sitting on um pueblo and walls and it's just like this common sense seems to go out the window and that must happen kind of internationally as well it's like you know anything goes it's like no we have these things called laws that you're disrespecting and not following <laughs> And, right. well, and, and it's, yeah. it's not just national park services. Oh, yeah. and it's everywhere. Sites. It's, it's what I like to call vacation mentality. Yes. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, um, yeah, and, and like perfectly logical, reasonable human beings. I mean, I will admit when I'm on vacation, you know, I like to, to unplug a bit and maybe not think as much. Um, but for when I was in at university, we did a fundraiser where we went and helped at a, a local amusement park for a really busy weekend. Um, you know, not like running rides or anything, but standing at the front of lines and saying, you know, you need to go put your bag in the locker before you um, do whatever. And the amount of stupid that I saw in three days. <laughs> um, I mean, like I had someone chuck an umbrella, like a big long one at me javelin style when park police were literally two and a half feet from me. And, and he, like, knew the park police were there. Right? What? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so, like, never, never underestimate the uh, effects of vacation brain hmm. on people's so-called common sense, which doesn't necessarily seem to be very common. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but that's another thing that we need to recognize and try and put up signs or have interpreters presence to deal with that. Yeah. Unfortunately. So what it all comes down to is we need to try to strike a balance between public access and preservation and whether or not that's even possible, seeing as there are a lot of places that maybe we want to close off to the public because they're getting loved to death, but 
I mean, I wouldn't want to close off Mesa Verde or Chaco Canyon or the hundreds of thousands of amazing sites in the United States and those even abroad to people because of dumb tourists. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of more out of our control that's a lot harder to work with. But I mean, in terms of people, it's like, how can we balance that? Um, and we'll, we can put these up on the website as well, but the Archaeological Institute of America, as well as UNESCO, uh, put up guides, um, best practice practices manuals type of things for both heritage managers as well as tourists on how not only should you behave at a site, um, but also how to involve the community, um, what is necessary for uh, tourists to do in order to help protect sites, what managers need to do, um, and includes things like understanding um, tourism cycles, uh, maybe limiting group sizes. And But for all of those, what it really seemed to boil down to is we need awareness, funding, and education. And that takes so much time, but it's like, where's the money going to come from? And how's the education going to happen? And I think that those can be like the hardest things to like, they're so necessary, but the hardest things to come up with when there is no funding and managers may not have the time to throw out as much education as possible at people to not be dumb at sites. So it really may, and it makes me think about like, what are some better ways we can um, make people more aware of their actions at sites, um, whether or not it's mm-hmm. signage, uh, websites, heck, podcasting. Um, one of my favorite uh, video series for uh, visiting archaeological sites is this Friends, um, Friends of Cedar Mesa. It's the Visit with Respect videos, and they're really, really good. And it's just like, should you bring your dog to a site? How do you visit with Mm. children? Um, All of these different subjects. It's like, if you see a tin can, what should you do? What's the difference between prehistoric and historic archaeology? And all of these different types of videos to make people more aware of their actions and how should they actually treat archaeological sites. So it's one of those, like, no excuse. You learned. (laughs) (laughs) Don't touch the rock art. Um, But yeah, I just, I, I think there are so many potential forms of education of awareness it's just a matter of the funding or if we can uh, every single archaeologist in the world can do some kind of public awareness thing for free (laughs) i think there's a, a couple of things um one i know that there's a lot of sites that have um limited population entry uh now like uh, machu picchu i know is one of them they only accept so many thousands of visitors so you have to get your ticket in advance um like many months in advance Mm -hmm. um and there's there's a lot of sites like that just due to the unintentional damage that we were discussing earlier with foot traffic um and the cost of restoration and maintenance uh kind of plays into some of these larger um sites, visited sites. I think one opportunity that I haven't seen utilized much, um, or I don't know if really at all, 
um, would be transport to a lot of these areas, transport to a lot of these sites where, you know, you have a large percentage of people going to Peru wanting to go see Machu Picchu or other archaeological sites is on the plane ride, you know, have the National Heritage, you know, um, group or a foundation or society put together a how can we preserve these for tomorrow uh, sort of videos mm. that are not super boring um, but can be like you know this is what we expect these are sort of the risks you may be tempted to do this but this is sort of the result um, stuff like that so that's I think that might be a good opportunity because I don't know if I'm sure you've all ridden in an airplane and you have that screen in front of you that won't shut off when they're doing the safety. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) I think that's a really good idea. And that's something I could be employed in many different ways, whether it's like you have to watch a video before at the visitor center before going out to something or, yeah, there are a lot of really good options. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, if you had even in in an airport, if you have a big waiting area, if you just have a video that kind of plays on loops that both highlights the amazing natural scenery that you're going to be seeing and the history and some of the archaeological sites, so it's not just like here's an informational PSA, don't do these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and but, it'll be played I mean, so many thing, times, people will be like, fine. I'll do it. It's like the right. loop at the airport about taking off your shoes before getting into the TSA line type of thing. It's like, fine, yeah, exactly. I'll take off my shoes. <laughs> um, yeah. But another thing on on a less kind of grand scale, and, and Chris, I think your idea is phenomenal and something that, you know, people should work on doing. Um, if you are an archaeologist, if you are a citizen who understands that carving your name into an ancient site is a bad idea or touching archaeological objects is a bad idea. Picking them up and taking them home with you is a bad idea. And you see someone engaging in that behavior, like be, be that tourist. I'm that tourist who shows up and is like, yeah, nope, don't do that. Like, not okay. I will like yell at you. <laughs> I will point to a sign. Um, yeah. You know, cause the signs are usually in six different languages, but if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, Oh, you definitely. know, this, it's not just a problem for the foundation or the site to manage, but we as individuals can also help make sure that this information um, and these sites are available for years to come. Yes, because some have, obviously we stated some um, prior to that, that closed down because just there's too much damage um, and we want to try and keep this connection continuing because you know people without uh, for a lot of people um i know the uh challenge that i know americans often have is that idea of the lack of heritage can be (laughs) disembodying um and can be challenging when it comes to creating community and having a feeling of belonging and that's where some of the political issues we've been having in the last 10 years have come from um yeah there've been a few studies that have had discussed that phenomenon and i think 
encouraging people to visit in a respectful way a lot of these archaeological and heritage sites can really encourage people to to embrace either a sense of belonging or a sense of um oh what's the word that you used earlier chelsea um like a stewardship there we go mm-hmm um, for the place that even if you don't have the deepest history there on a personal level, but you're from there or you call this place home and you want to help protect the history that is there. You don't have to have that specific heritage as your own to want to, and feel the obligation to protect it. Um, and that's something I think that can be be hard to understand for some people of like, well, it's not my history. Why should I care? Um, because I've heard that argument a few times and I'm mm-hmm. like, well, but you live here. <laughs> yeah. And it's someone's history. Exactly. And it is someone's history. And we should all, is this kind of gets back to the, we're all human. We should all care about each other. Like we're in this together. If you want your own heritage and history to be respected, you have to reciprocate that respect to others. So, um, that's my soapbox. Definitely. So we are actually approaching the end of our podcast. So um, that was great. I don't know, Kristen, if you want to add anything more to that as final thoughts or Emily, if you have final thoughts on the conversation we've had today. Now is our time. (laughs) It is time. Um, I would say that large sites that are well-known such as say Stonehenge or Pompeii that get a lot of conservation dollars. Um, just because they're well-known doesn't mean that they always know the best way to spend. They've been doing better, um, in recent years, but historically just because it's a large site, um, doesn't mean that you don't have responsibility to help take care of it as a visitor. Um, And that kind of goes into the whole, like, you know, if you are going to a large city and you litter, you're like, well, someone's going to pick that up later. It's like, just don't throw your gum wrapper on the ground or your gum for that matter. Um, So (laughs) it's stuff like that. It's just to continue to be respectful. And um, yeah. Yeah. Emily? All all I have to add to that is just. Be a good tourist. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Read the signs. Don't take things. Just be yeah. a good person, people. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if it's something that you think you shouldn't be doing or that you need to hide that you're doing, like you shouldn't be doing it and don't. Yeah, and don't be sneaky. <laughs> don't, don't be that I'm a one in a million, you know. It's always better to err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. I think that does bring us to the end of our podcast today. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me. It is lovely as always. It was wonderful chatting with you two. Definitely. Um, and Always. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the highlights of my, um, it's pretty bi-weekly, but I always <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> Um, yes if anyone has comments or questions about this episode we can always be reached at women in archaeology at gmail.com or on twitter at women archies we would love to hear from you and we'll see you next time bye bye
Bye. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.